It's unusual for me to preach two weeks in a row. I preach occasionally uh, when the need arises of Pastor Steve being gone and things like that. And last Sunday, I, I preached and started a new series in the Gospel of Matthew, verse by verse. And this morning, we will continue that in Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. So I'd encourage you to open your Bible to Matthew 1, and in the bulletin is a a sheet that has some questions on for discussion afterwards, and as well as on the front, an outline for writing notes and follow along with the message. The most momentous event in human history is the coming of Jesus Christ into the world. I don't think the the world, uh, in, in its secular sense, ever recognizes that. They, for the most part, enjoy Christmas and singing Christmas carols, but give no thought afterwards in the rest of the year that it really is the most momentous event in history that God came in human flesh and that Jesus Christ was born. And that's what this chapter is telling us about. But before we actually get to the chapter, to see something of that momentous event, turn to the book of Psalms, and in particular, the second Psalm, Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is a psalm that has to do with God's anointed, and the word anointed means Messiah, and that is a prophecy of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in this psalm of the Messiah, about the anointing of the Messiah, in Psalm chapter 2, verse 7, very interesting verse, starts with the word I, and the one speaking there is Jesus Christ. And uh, this is in his glory. This is before he came to earth that he says this. I will tell of the decree, the Lord, that would be God the Father, said to me, you are my son. Now, Jesus Christ, second person of the Trinity, has always been in existence, has always been God, and has always been God the Son. But here is a prophecy speaking to Jesus in eternity. You are my son, my eternal son. Today, I have begotten you. And that word begotten means to give life. And this is a prophecy of the fact that the eternal son of God, who had no beginning and no end, Yet there would come a time when God the Father would give him human life. And that happened twice. First, it happened in the events that we are going to study in Matthew chapter 1, what we call the virgin birth, or I I think a better way to say it is the virgin conception of Jesus. And so the virgin conception and birth of Jesus Christ was prophesied here. But there's a second time that the Father gave him life, and that is after his death on the cross, when the Father and the Spirit raised him from the dead. 
And uh, don't just take my word for it. That's what the word of God says. And we're not going to turn there, but in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 5 and 6, it quotes this verse referring to it of God the Father giving Jesus, giving God the Son human life when he was conceived by the Holy Spirit in the virgin's womb. And then he, then the book of Acts, chapter 13, verses 33 and 34, quote this verse in Psalm 2, referring to God the Father giving human life to Jesus when he had died and then gave him resurrection life. So this most momentous event in the history of the world is something that uh, is prophesied in the Older Testament, and we see it in the New Testament. Turn over to the Gospel of John. John's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 14. And the Word, well, in verse 1 of John 1, John begins by talking about, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Later on, he specifically says the Word is Jesus Christ, who is God, has always been God, he's with God. But in verse 14, and the Word, the second person of the Trinity, became flesh. When did that happen? in the events we're going to study in Matthew chapter 1. Became flesh and dwelt among us. That is very significant because we're going to see he was called Emmanuel, which was prophesied in the Older Testament, the name Emmanuel, meaning God with us. And John 1.14 says he dwelt among us. God was with us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Well, turning now to Matthew chapter 1, last week we studied the first 17 verses, which give us Jesus' human lineage. Uh, he, he was uh, perfectly human. Uh, his lineage came from David, which was the royal line for the kings of Israel. But God had promised back in the book of Genesis that from Judah, the line of Judah of which David came, would come a ruler who would rule forever and ever. That was a prophecy of the Messiah. And it was a prophecy that the king would come from the line of David. And so in Matthew chapter 1, Matthew shows us Jesus' human genealogy. He is human. He's also a human who is from the line of David, the exact line through Solomon and so on, that's going to sit on the throne. But then we saw last week there was a problem that developed because in that line of David, there was a king called Jeconiah, descendant of David, who was a king on the throne of Israel, who was so wicked that God pronounced a curse on that line, saying no one from Jeconiah will sit on the throne of David. So that meant, the, in, in the genealogy, we saw that that came down through Joseph, although Jesus is, is in David's line, um, there's a problem if Joseph is his human father. And then in Luke's gospel, you discover that uh, his mother Mary was in the line of David, but not from that cursed line, but from a, through another son of David. So the whole thing comes together in the virgin birth, as we are going to see in this. 
because Joseph adopts Jesus, becomes the legal father of Jesus, that royal line going through Solomon and so on will, will, will go all the way to Jesus, and he doesn't have the sinful taint. And so we'll see more of that as we go through this this morning. But that was the human lineage from David. Now in verses 18 to 25, we see his divine lineage. And it's a wonderful passage to study. And Jesus' divine lineage is made possible by the virgin birth that enabled that whole problem with Jeconiah to be bypassed. And, and we'll see that as, as we go through this. And so Matthew's account of Jesus' virgin conception, by the way, should not be a surprise to us because it's promised back in the book of Genesis. In Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, after Adam and Eve sinned, God came and pronounced some words of judgment. Turn to Genesis chapter 3. And verse 15. In Genesis 3.15, God is speaking judgment on the serpent, that is, on Satan, who is the one that tempted and brought them to the point of sin. And God says in verse 15, I will put enmity between you, that is Satan, and the woman. Now, the woman is not just Eve. It's speaking here of womankind, of womanhood, you might say. And between your offspring, that is, and and literally in Hebrew, the word is seed there, like sperm, and your seed and her offspring. But really, it's, it's that Hebrew word seed. But we know that biologically, the woman does not have the seed. She receives the seed from the man. So this is something very unique that is prophesied way back at the beginning of the Bible. There's going to be a woman who is going to have a very unique birth. And uh, that one that, that comes out of that birth, who is the Lord Jesus Christ, He, in the next part of verse 15, he, that is Jesus, the seed of the woman, shall bruise your head. A head wound is fatal so often. And this is saying the Messiah, the one who comes from Mary, is going to be the one that defeats Satan. And that happened at the cross. There's more of that in the Bible. And then you, Satan, shall bruise his heel. Um... Normally, a heel injury is not fatal. And uh, that, that bruise his heel speaks of putting him to death on the cross. Oh, it was fatal physically, but uh, it, didn't, uh, it didn't destroy Jesus. He came back to life, and he is the King of kings and Lord of lords. So there is that wonderful prophecy In the book of Genesis, chapter 3, verse 15, there's another prophecy we will see quoted in our passage, Isaiah 7, 14, where is a prophecy of a virgin shall conceive and bring forth a child, and you'll call his name Emmanuel. 
So it shouldn't surprise any of Matthew's readers, who his original readers were Matthew, or were, were Jews. We saw last week he wrote to a Jewish audience. Holy Spirit inspired it, not though just for the Jews, but for all of us. And But it shouldn't have surprised that first audience if they knew their Old Testament, which so many of them did, of prophecy, of what exactly is happening here. So Matthew is now going to give us the story of the birth of Jesus from Joseph's perspective. We so often at Christmas time read it from Luke, which is from Mary's perspective. But this one here in Matthew is from Joseph's perspective. Uh, Let's read God's word. So in honor of God's word, would you stand and follow along as I read Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. Matthew 1, 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, He did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. This is God's word. You may be seated. So first of all, you'll see on the outline in verses 18 to 20, we have the explanation of the virgin birth. Look beginning in verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. Uh, It's different from any other birth is where he's heading. It's not the normal thing that we see generation after generation. This is unique. Never happened before, never will happen again. So it took place in this way. When his mother Mary, now Mary was probably somewhere between 12 and 15 years of age. That seems to have been the normal uh, age at which a, a young woman would get married in those days. She lived in a village in Nazareth called, called or a village in Galilee called Nazareth. And that, interestingly enough, was a, was a community that was settled by descendants of King David. Uh, in a period called the Maccabees, if, when you study Bible history, you learn that in that period between the Old Testament and the New Testament, it's a great struggle in the land of Israel. And there were some Jewish pe- men who, who were deliverers who were called the Maccabees. And during that great time in Israel's history, some of the descendants of David, who had become very poor, 
And that was prophesied in the Old Testament, that that by the time the Messiah would be born from the line of David, the the family of David would be like a dried up stump, no longer a descendant of David reigning over Israel and so on. And then out of that dried up stump is going to come a branch with life, the Messiah. So it was a terrible time for the family of David. But they, they seem to have been zealous for the Lord. And they were concerned because in the area of Galilee, it was a pagan area. There weren't many Jewish people living there. And it was pagan idolatry during the time of the Maccabees. And so many of them immigrated north to the land of, to the area of Galilee, started this village called Nazareth. They called themselves Nazareans from, taken from Isaiah 11.1, 1, uh, talking up that prophecy of the branch that's going to come from the stump. And from that name that they called themselves came the name of the village of Nazareth. And these, these original settlers were very zealous for the Lord. They wanted to bring the word of God and faith in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to this pagan area. But so a couple of generations later, here is this young woman. Luke's gospel tells us she was a godly young woman of faith. Well, he goes on, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. Now, to be betrothed is similar to what we would say to be engaged. It was a commitment for marriage. However, in their culture, it wasn't made by the young man and the young woman. It was made by the two families. And they said, you know, our Joseph would probably be, be very good for him to be married to your Mary. Yeah, we, we like that. And so the parents came together without necessarily uh, asking the Joseph and the Mary whether they wanted that. It was just assumed. The parents do that, and uh, that's how it's, uh, how it's going to be. And so that was the first step of betrothal. And betrothal was much more binding than engagement. Uh, it took a divorce, or as we're going to see, uh, in some cases, execution. But we'll get into that uh, in a moment. And uh, normally, it was a 12-month period. There was certainly no sexual contact between the couple and very little social contact. They didn't go out on dates and things like that that we do in our culture. They had very little contact uh, during that year. And then uh, after that period of a year, um, and Joseph and Mary at this point are in that one-year period, uh, the groom, in the meantime, during that year, is getting the place ready where he's going to bring his bride to be their home. And at the right time, he goes to the bride's home, 
And whenever he gets there, and that became kind of a game, apparently, trying to catch the bride and the bridesmaids uh, unawares that it's going to happen right now. And, and so many times it happened at night, and the bride or the groom and his, his groomsmen would come, and, and the bride is there with her bridesmaids, and the groom would lead them to his father's house where they would have a marriage ceremony. And then they, after that marriage ceremony, there would be a wedding feast. Many times it went a whole week of feasting. And then after that, the bridal couple went to the bridal chamber where that marriage was consummated with sexual intimacy. So that's kind of how the marriages were done. And they, so Matthew wants us to know they're betrothed. They have this commitment, this engagement. They're not uh, connected very much, certainly not sexually, and uh, waiting for all the festivities to start. And uh, so Matthew then says she's betrothed to Joseph. He would have been a few years older than Mary, probably, following the custom of that time. Elsewhere, we learn he was what's called a carpenter. Right away, we think, obviously, of someone who works with wood, building things with wood. Really, the, the Greek word that's translated carpenter is a broader word than that. He's a, he's a craftsman. It could be with wood or it could be with stone. And if, when you go to Israel and you look at the land and then also learn about what it was like 2,000 years ago, you realize there's not much wood there. There's a lot of rocks. I mean, there are rocks galore, but not much wood. And so the houses and the buildings were made out of stone. Chances are he was doing more stonemasonry than carpentry, but doing things like that is what Scripture says. But uh, so here this couple are betrothed, and it says before they came together. In other words, it's that one-year betrothal period. And they had the important thing is they had no sexual contact. So we can only assume... Or excuse me, we can we can figure that Joseph assumed when with this news that he's going to hear uh, that um, uh, there's she's been unfaithful. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. So look, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. So during this period of the betrothal, somehow. The word begins to spread. You know how gossip goes in a small community. And uh, learned that Mary is expecting. And this verse tells us she was found to be with child, but it was something miraculous. It is from the Holy Spirit. Now we know from Luke's gospel that before this happened to Joseph, Before he learned what he's going to learn here, the angel Gabriel had appeared to Mary. And Gabriel had told Mary that she was about to become pregnant with a man who would be called, quote, the son of the Most High, and that this will be the heir to David's throne. 
And of course, Mary asks, well, how can this be? I have not known a man, known in the most intimate way, not just a casual knowledge, but she has not been sexually intimate with any man. And the angel explains, this is going to be the work of the Holy Spirit. And that then is what had happened just before what we are reading in Matthew's gospel. So she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit and her husband, Joseph. So Joseph is called her husband, even though they haven't had the marriage ceremony. That was one of the differences in their system than ours. During that one-year betrothal period, the guy was called the husband and the girl was called the wife. It was just standard procedure for them. They were that committed. This was that strong of of a commitment uh, to them. So her husband, Joseph, being a just man, that is, he was faithful to God, followed God's word, followed God's law. He was a man who did things right. He didn't just do things uh, the convenient way. He did things the way they were supposed to be, particularly the way they were supposed to be according to how God uh, has ordered things. And he did not do things out of anger or revenge. All of that is wrapped up in the fact that he's called a just man. So think about Joseph, what he would have been thinking. He would have thought in that culture I can't marry her because she has had relations with another man and is carrying his child. Think about how devastating that would be for Joseph. He is, everything has been set. Everything has been moving towards this direction. He probably uh, is attracted to Mary and looking forward to to this marriage and, and so on. But he's a just man. And so what we're going to see is because of his love, because of his righteous love and his righteous kindness, he couldn't, th- couldn't just couldn't deal with the thought of putting her through the public humiliation that the law of God had said would come in a situation like this. It would be a public ordeal, there would be shame, and he didn't want to put put her through it. So continuing in verse 19, unwilling to put her to shame, the law said that when a a young woman before marriage was found to be with child, she was to be stoned to death. Now, that was what the law said in Deuteronomy 22, 23, and 24. We know from Jewish history that that was not done very often. Um, The Jewish oral law, though, uh, what we have in Deuteronomy is the Jewish written law inspired by by the Holy Spirit. There was also the Jewish people have another book called the Mishnah, which is the oral law that they say was passed down from Moses to generation to generation until it was written. It's not inspired scripture, 
But still today, the religious Jews take it as the oral law of God. Well, the oral law, the Mishnah, added to this. Not only would she be be stoned to death, but she, before that, would be brought to the eastern gate of the temple. She would be dressed in black. Her jewelry would be stripped from her. And she's all in this black. The whole thing would be a shameful experience. And Joseph, because of his love and his kindness, doesn't want to see her shamed. And so he knows there is another option that was commonly done in those days, and that was divorce. Even in the betrothal period, it took a divorce to break an engagement. Some of you were probably engaged at one point to someone before the person you married. I did. I was. Praise God. I broke that engagement. And then God brought Terry into my life. And that's a whole other story. But um, anyway, we, we break engagements today without having to get a divorce. In those days, they had to get a divorce. But it was a very private affair. It wasn't public. And so he says to put her to shame, resolve to divorce her quietly. That is privately. All they needed was a simple document and two witnesses. You didn't even have to go to court. You just had these two witnesses and drew up uh, this document. So in his mind, he thinks, that's what I'm going to do. It's the best answer to this dilemma. But God had a plan for Joseph to provide for Joseph to provide the legal right for this baby to be the king of Israel and the amazing events of the virgin conception of Jesus. And God had in mind what a tremendous ministry for David, or excuse me, for Joseph. Can you imagine? It's, 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 a, it's mind-boggling when your first child is born and you realize the responsibility that you now have for this little life and this new person. But for Joseph, this person is the Son of God. This person is the Messiah. And God is entrusting to Joseph and Mary the care for this child and the training of this child. I mean, you talk about a heavy responsibility, but what a privilege that God had uh, for Joseph. So Joseph thought he had made the best decision to divorce her, not knowing it was the wrong decision. He is leaning on his own understanding. Remember the good verses from Proverbs 3, 5, and 6? Don't lean on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge him and trust in him, and he will direct your path. Joseph is leaning on his own understanding, and he's come up with the terrible decision as a result. But God has a better plan, and God reveals it to Joseph, and he's going to give the guidance he needs. God showed him not to lean on his own understanding, 
but to trust in him. By the way, he'll do that for you and for me. And the difficult decisions that we have to make, that not lean on our own understanding, but in all our ways acknowledge him and trust in him, and he will direct our path. Well, let's see what God does. Verse 20, but as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Who was that angel? Well, we've already seen an angel appeared to Mary before this, and Luke's gospel gives us the name of the angel. It was Gabriel. Gabriel is one of the few angels whose name is given in Scripture. And Gabriel seems to be uh, often used for bringing big news. He certainly did to Mary. So although the name isn't given here, I wouldn't be surprised if this is Gabriel. Can't say it for sure. After we've been with the Lord a thousand, two thousand years, we might get around to asking him, which which angel was it that came? But uh, this angel, the servant of the Lord, appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David. Now, when he calls him son of David, Jesus is the son of David, the promised son of David. But Joseph was a son of David in the sense that he was one of the descendants of David. And so uh, for, G- for, da- for Jesus to be the son of David, Messiah, his father, or in this case, not his biological father, but his legal father, must be a son of David. And so it's, I think it's, it's important to realize that the angel is, is acknowledging that, that all of this is working concerning this problem of the curse on Joseph's line. But it's going to be bypassed in this amazing way of the virgin birth. And so the angel comes and says, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. Um, Most grooms before the wedding have some fear, if the guys will be honest. Uh, You know, it's it's a big step to marry this woman. When Terry and I got married... Uh, one of the pictures that the photographer wanted to take was before the wedding, I was with the best man and the groomsman, and the photographer staged this picture of as if I'm trying to run away, and my best man is pulling me back because it's just one of those things that guys get, get, get a, little, a little afraid uh, before the wedding. But for Joseph... It's not fear just like that. He's, he isn't to fear the stigma and shame that's going to come because of the gossip that's going to go around the town. That gossip will still continue. Only it will probably accuse Joseph of being the biological father. So he said, don't fear to take Mary uh, as, as your wife. And... Uh, don't be afraid of the responsibility that is coming. Why not? Why should you not fear? Do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. This is not the result of an immoral relationship, Joseph. This is a relationship of the work of God 
This is the work of the God that has brought this about in Mary's body. Then verse 20. But as he considered these things, well, then verse 21. Um, then in verse 21, we have the reason for the virgin birth. Look at verse 21. She will bear a son. Now, several months before Mary was pregnant, her relative Elizabeth all of a sudden learns she's going to have a child. And the problem with Elizabeth and her husband is they were beyond childbearing age, had not been able to have a child. And yet God is going to miraculously work, not a virgin birth, no, 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 just God's work like he did with Sarah when Sarah was too old to have children. And he's going to do this with Mary's uh, relative Elizabeth, who is going to have a son who's going to be John the Baptist. But when the Lord announced it to Elizabeth's husband, Zacharias, the term was, your wife will bear you a son. That's the normal way of doing it. You know, the husband and the wife, and they come together and they have a child, and she bears him a son. In other words, the son that he had a part in. But notice specifically, that's not what's said here. Not he will, that she will bear you a son, it's she will bear a son. It's not yours, Joseph, biologically, but she will bear a son. This is going to be absolutely astonishing. And he goes on with another detail. He says, and you shall call his name Jesus. By giving the name, Joseph officially becomes the legal father of Jesus. Not the biological but the legal, by giving him his name, which God has said, don't name him Joseph, don't name him John, don't name him James, name him Jesus. Now, he wasn't speaking English, right? And in Hebrew, the word Jesus is Yeshua. It's, it's an old Hebrew name, and translated into English, it means Yahweh, which is the personal name of God, Yahweh brings salvation, or Yahweh will save. Yahweh is salvation, is the idea of this name. Now, other Jewish men in that day had this name, Jesus, Yeshua, and by their name they testified, oh, let me tell you, uh, God is, is a God of salvation. But when Jesus had the name Yeshua, He wasn't just testifying God is a God of salvation, but he was testifying that he himself is that salvation. That is the special significance of that name for Jesus. And he goes on. His name will be Yahweh. He's a savior. He will bring salvation. What's he going to save from? Well, the next phrase, he will save his people from their sins. His people. We think of the Jewish people as being God's people. They are called that in Scripture, but that's not what this is referring to. His people. You know, Scripture talks about the fact that in eternity past, God the Father 
determined to give a gift of love to God the Son. And it would be of people who are sinners, who God has chosen and will bring them to himself for salvation. And there will be Jews, certainly, and there will be Gentiles. And we are to take the gospel to every tongue and tribe, that from every tongue and tribe there would be people, there would be his people who would come to salvation, who would be saved from sin by this one who is being born. It's tremendous, tremendous promise. He will be saved, uh, he will save his people from their sins because of what he will do on the cross. He will bear the penalty of sin of all that will repent and believe uh, in, in, in the Lord. It's tremendous, tremendous promise. Well, then in verse 22 and 23, we have the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy of the virgin birth. Look at verse 22. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Now, that word fulfill, Matthew is going to point out more fulfillments of Old Testament prophecy. Going to point out more of them in his gospel. And he's going to quote more of these Old Testament prophecies saying they are being fulfilled than any other New Testament writer except Paul in the book of Romans. And remember that Matthew had an audience in mind of Jewish people. And he knew that Jewish people would want to know the fulfillment of their scriptures, of their prophecies. And so he does it time after time after time. And that's what he's doing here. He says this is going to be the fulfillment of a prophecy that God gave by the prophet. The prophet was Isaiah. It was in Isaiah chapter 7, 14, when God says to a wicked king whose name is Ahaz, who wouldn't do what God told him to do. He says to Ahaz, I will show you a sign. And that sign is, behold, a virgin will conceive and bear a child, and you'll call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. You see, Ahaz, at the time that he lived, the king of Syria, which was a major enemy on one side, and the northern kingdom of Israel, which was another enemy, they were both threatening to come and destroy the Jewish nation, and in particular, destroy the royal line. And so King Ahaz is facing that. And God says, I'll give you a sign that the royal line is not going to be destroyed. There's coming a virgin who will give birth to a son, who will bear the Messiah, who will be Emmanuel, God with us. Well, let's, let's take that apart in, in verse 23. <clears throat> he says, um, behold, the virgin shall conceive. Now, Isaiah is writing in Hebrew. And in Hebrew, the word that he uses that is translated here, virgin, can be translated young woman. 
and it can be translated virgin. Both are accepted translations of the word. Depends on the context. But think about it. If he's speaking of a young woman, there's nothing miraculous in this prophecy. It happens every day that young women conceive and bear a child. So it, it, it really doesn't make much sense. But liberal theologians and liberal translators of the Bible have taken that Hebrew word and said, well, it means young woman. So we're, gonna, we're not going to believe the virgin birth because this word means young woman. But it also means virgin. And it's interesting that between the Old Testament and the New Testament, when a translation was done by godly Jewish scholars at that time of the book of Isaiah, when they came to Isaiah 7.14, they translated it, translating it into Greek, in a Greek word that means only virgin and definitely virgin. Then... Later, when the Holy Spirit inspired Matthew to write this gospel, every word of scripture is inspired by God, right? And God inspired the word in Greek that means virgin, not young woman. So you'll hear from liberal theologians and liberal preaching sometimes, well, this is a prophecy of a young woman. You can be certain from scripture It's not young woman. It's virgin. It is miraculous. It's very important. So he says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God is with us. What was the message to that wicked king? God's not going to destroy the royal line. It's not going to totally destroy the people of Israel. They'll, they'll have some trials, but they're not going to be wiped out. And God will be with them. And that will never be clearer than when he comes to be with them in the person of Jesus Christ, second person of the triune Godhead. So you'll call him Emmanuel. Now, you can look in the Gospels. And although there is this statement, you never hear someone speaking to him, calling him Emmanuel. Uh, Emmanuel is a descriptive name. There is, there's uh, uh, names that uh, are given at birth that are the name of the person. The name of this person is Yeshua, Jesus. But there are descriptive names. For instance, Joe Biden. When he was born, his parents gave him the name Joe Biden. That's always been his name, Joseph Biden. But he becomes president, and so now he is called President Biden. Yes, that's a title, but it's also descriptive. It's a descriptive of him now that he is the president. Uh, So we do have examples of this kind of thing where the person isn't specifically called that, but it is a descriptive name that is given of them. And that's what Emmanuel is uh, to the Lord Jesus Christ. So Emmanuel tells us who he is. He is God with us. Uh, When we close the service, we're going to sing Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Now, I know that that is a Christmas song. We probably never sing it. 
other than at Christmas. But Charles Wesley, when he wrote that, and interesting in the adult Sunday school class this morning, uh, we learned something about Charles Wesley. And uh, he had this in mind when he wrote, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, and he wrote, and we'll sing, Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord, late in time behold him come, offspring of the virgin's womb, veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. Good words, biblical words. He will be with us. Jesus, later on in Matthew 28, 20, is going to tell the disciples, Behold, I will be with you, not just that I am with you, but I will be with you till the end of the age. And that's his promise to us as well. But then lastly, we have the reaction to the virgin birth. And that's in verses 24 and 25. In verse 24, when Joseph woke from sleep, his life will never be the same again. Most fathers here can say that when their first child was born. Their life has never been and will never be the same now that they have a child. But Joseph, how much even more true was that, that his life would never be the same again? He woke from sleep and look what he did. He obeyed the Lord. He woke from sleep. He did as the angel of the Lord commanded. He took his wife, just as he was called husband in the betrothal period. Mary is called wife in the betrothal period. He takes Mary. And uh, what, what happens? They have that wedding procession. That is part of the procedure of weddings in those days. He went to Mary's home, and he leads a procession to his home. And then they have some kind of marriage feast, maybe not the whole seven-day thing, since this probably was done very quickly. And then they entered into the marriage chamber. But look at the next part in verse 25 but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. Knew her not. That's a biblical term. It goes back to Genesis 4.1, where it says, Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived a son. They went into the bridal chamber, but Joseph being the just man that he was, exercised love for Mary, exercised love for the baby, exercised self-discipline. You see, if he had done what was normal, what was natural, there would have always been that suspicion Oh, this baby is Joseph's biological son. Just came a little early. But to keep any hint of that away, Joseph did not know her sexually until she had given birth to a son. After that, they enjoyed each other physically as husband and wife. 
and she conceived other children. Now, I know uh, the Catholic Church uh, says that she was a perpetual virgin, but that is not what Scripture says. The implication here is that they had uh, normal relations after the birth of Jesus. And we have indication in Scripture that they had at least six more children, four sons and at least two daughters. And that's in Matthew 13, verses 55 to 56. What an astounding event, the birth of Jesus Christ. Well, let's wrap it up by thinking about this virgin conception is important. What makes this important? First of all, makes it important because it makes it possible for Jesus to be the heir to David's throne, which fulfills the prophecies in the Old Testament. So it makes it possible for Jesus to be the heir to David's throne. Secondly, it makes possible the uniting of full deity and full humanity in one person. Thirdly, it makes possible Jesus' humanity without inherited sin. Every one of us inherited sin from Adam and it was passed on to our parents, to, to, uh, on and on to our parents and on to us. Jesus did not have that. It's made possible by the virgin uh, conception. In Luke one thirty-five, Gabriel said, The Holy Spirit will, uh, will um, come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child that will be born will be called holy. Holy without sin, the Son of God. And so this, this taint of sin that kept on going down, generation even in David's line didn't reach Jesus because Joseph was not his father. And then apparently also um, the work of the Holy Spirit in Mary prevented the transmission of sin from Mary. And he is absolutely sinless and holy. And then fourthly, it illustrates that salvation must come from God. It can never come through human effort. Human effort could have done all kinds of things to somehow bring about Messiah. But it takes the supernatural work of God. And what a picture of the fact it takes the supernatural work of God for a sinner to become a child of God. And that we who knew sin, our sin was put on Christ. Christ who knew no sin, his righteousness is put on us. There is nothing we can do or any human can do for us that can bring that about. It is the supernatural work of God in the new birth. Praise God for his plan of sending a sinless Savior, which this is doing. Well, this morning, it's important that everyone know that he came to save his people from their sins. And if you're here this morning and you're still in your sin, 
you have not been forgiven. You have not been transformed by the work of God. The Bible says for you to repent of your sin. Turn your back on it and trust Jesus Christ as your Savior. Not trust, not trusting religion and church membership and these things. Well, those are important for one after they becomes a Christian, become a Christian, but they don't make us a Christian. But to repent of our sin and to trust Jesus Christ as our Savior, the only means of our salvation. Then you can have the gift of eternal life, the gift of this baby that was born, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, if you are a believer, you are a Christian, there are some important lessons from Joseph and Mary here. Uh, turn over to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1. Luke's Gospel, chapter 1. When the angel Gabriel gave all this news to Mary, I mean, here she's this young teenager, and, and she gets this amazing message from Gabriel. Stunning. And look at her response. Luke chapter 1, verse 38. After the, um, the angel, uh, Mary has said, how can this be? I'm a virgin, and so on. The angel and, and answers and says, for nothing will be impossible with God. And verse 38. And Mary said, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. She had a submissiveness to the Father's plan. And that was not easy to submit to the Father's plan. And all of the implications that would have. But she did it. And what a picture for us daily to submit ourselves as a Christian to the Father's plan. And then Joseph, he was so troubled when he was leaning on his own understanding. But God revealed the true way to him, and he trusted in the Lord and obeyed. What a lesson for us as a believer as well. Trust and obey. Let's pray. Father, how we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the Savior that you have sent the one who came to save his people from their sins. And Father, I pray for those here this morning and watching on, on the live stream who are still in their sins. Lord, that they would come in repentance and faith in Christ. Draw them to yourself, I pray. And I pray that we who know you would grow in our submission and our obedience to you. And I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.